Hopefully this didn't happen to you on the way to church this morning, but what is your first reaction when someone cuts you off in traffic? Well, I see a few fingers pointing at certain people at this point. Or, or what is your first reaction when someone's cell phone goes off in the service? I'm not going to point any names out at this point. A while back, I was talking to a, a lady that I noticed had painted the word Jesus on her middle fingernail. And when I asked her about this, because I just thought it was curious, she told me that she was reclaiming the middle finger for Jesus. And I thought to myself, I don't know if you're driving around and you're in traffic and you're waving that finger, many people are going to understand that what you're really trying to tell them is Jesus loves you. What's your first reaction when someone tells you that your work isn't real work. Sometimes uh, pastors are accused of this. One congregation described their pastor as invisible six days of the week and incomprehensible on the seventh. What is your first reaction when someone trips you on the soccer field or disagrees with one of your opinions? I know what my first reaction is. My first reaction is to fight. Fists up, poison tongue, blood boiling. It's actually quite energizing. Uh, sometimes when I'm a little bored, I feel like I just need to get into a good fight. It, it kind of gets you going again. It's why we rise to our feet when we're at a hockey game and a fight breaks out. When terrorists strike, we strike harder. If someone kills a loved one, sign us up for a front row seat where they're going to be fried in the electric chair. We'll even flip the switch on. If our wife slams the door, we'll slam it harder. If our daughter yells, we'll yell louder. If you push me, I'll push you back. If you dig in, I'll dig in even deeper. And if you think you're stubborn, just wait to find out how stubborn I can be. Years of Middle Eastern history show us the never-ending cycle of throwing rocks and they come flying back and you throw a bigger one and they throw a bigger one back and over and over it goes for centuries and for generations. The Garden of Gethsemane was one of the darkest moments in Jesus' life. Some scholars even debate whether Jesus' prayer in the garden when he said, Father, take this cup from me was even darker than the time that he was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gethsemane finds Jesus in a dark place. And it wasn't only the physical pain that Jesus was about to face on the cross as he was in the garden praying, but the pain of knowing that his friends were going to abandon him. And that he was going to bear the weight of the world's sin. And he was also going to experience the abandonment of his heavenly father. We have no way of comprehending what this would have been like for Jesus. But it drove Jesus to pray, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, please, don't make me go through this. Take this cup from me. 
In fact, the Bible describes Jesus when he prayed this prayer as being in anguish. Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And yet in the midst of this struggle over his destiny, Jesus submitted and said, and yet it's not my will, but Father, your will be done. In many ways, it was at this moment that the battle was won. It was at this moment where for Jesus, no more questions were to be asked. No more, if it is possible, take this from me. It was decided. Jesus had chosen his Father's will, and he was going to face the cross. He was going to submit. It's why in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, it has Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he finally decides, it's not my will, but your will that is done, we see then that Jesus stomps on the head of the serpent. In many ways, what Mel Gibson is portraying there is the victory was won in the garden. Just like we lost our relationship in a garden. Jesus won it back in the garden. When he said, not my will, but yours be done. And Satan was stomped on. Jesus had made his decision. And it's from here that we pick up today's story. Because the decision that Jesus made goes against everything in the way we would respond to something like this. Our throw another rock, fight back type of response. And so in John 18, after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. And after Jesus finished praying, the leading priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. And now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen. And so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he said. Jesus of Nazareth, they asked. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. And then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Jesus 
had chosen his father's will. But the temptations were still to come. And as they often come in our own life, the temptations were to come through Jesus' closest friends. As the soldiers attempt to arrest Jesus, the sword of one of Jesus' most loyal followers is unsheathed. It's time for the Messiah to fight. It's time to take up arms. Everything the way Jesus has been handling things and every way that Jesus is being handled is wrong. He's an innocent man. He's been falsely accused, betrayed by a kiss. The force of injustice must be solved with force. Power needs to be met with superior power. And so Peter, who incidentally is much better with a fishing net than a sword, pulls out a sword and begins swinging his blade wildly and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. With swords drawn and, and blood gushing down Malchus's head, it's chaos. This is the perfect getaway for Jesus. While the chaos is going on, the disciples can get away, regroup, get some arms, and come back and fight. And then Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. That must have cut Peter deeper than any sword would have cut him. I mean, all Peter was trying to do was protect his leader was to protect the one that he believed was the Messiah. All Peter wanted to do was to stand up for what is right. What is wrong with that? To make sure that injustice doesn't win. All of this only to be rebuked by the man that Peter loves so dearly. And to hear, Peter, put that sword away. That's not how we are going to handle this situation. When I look at Peter's life, I, I wonder how many times was Peter actually rebuked by Jesus? I find it commendable that Peter actually continued on with Jesus because his track record wasn't so good. And I think for me, after being rebuked enough times, you would just give up. But somehow Peter just kept sticking with Jesus. It was only hours earlier than this that Jesus was having the last supper with his disciples. And as no one wanted to take the position of a servant and wash feet, it was Jesus who got up and started washing his disciples' feet. And when Peter recognized what was happening, Peter said, No, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. Only to be rebuked and say and hear Jesus say, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you'll not be part of me. And then Peter says, fine, then, then wash all of me, only to be rebuked again by Jesus. And said, hear Jesus say, Peter, I don't need to wash all of you. Peter was also part of the disciples when they were arguing about who was the greatest, only to hear Jesus rebuke him then also. 
And then Peter was the one who jumped out of the boat and for a few steps actually walked on water only to lose faith and to fall into the water and hear Jesus rebuke him there and say, Peter, you have little faith. One time when Peter tried to convince Jesus that he didn't have to go to the cross and die on the cross, he even heard Jesus rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. That's pretty hard. And when Peter promised Jesus that he would never betray him, Jesus said that in this one night, you're going to betray me three times. It's enough to make even some of the strongest people just give up and say, what's the point? Everything I try, everything I do, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're getting it wrong. You're not doing this right. You're just... Why not give up? And yet somehow Peter stuck with Jesus because as he said on the one occasion, he knew, to whom else shall I go? Even being rebuked all the time by this man here, he has the words of eternal life. And so once again, Peter finds himself rebuked by Jesus as he pulls out his sword and slashes off the ear of Malchus. One of the hardest shifts for the disciples to make, one of the hardest shifts for all of us who are disciples of Jesus to make is the shift in the way Jesus views power. When Jesus said, who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? It's the one who sits at the table, of course. In the logic system of the way the world operates. But Jesus says, but not here. Not with me. For I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says, you understand that the way society works is that the one who sits at the table is the one who is the one with power. Other people serve him. But in the way that I do things, in my kingdom, it is the reverse. In the same way societies operate on strength, power, greatness, the military, fighting, but once again, Jesus is saying, but not here. Jesus' society will not be like that. I understand in your way of thinking, you've been baptized into your societal way of thinking, where those that sit at the table are the ones that are in authority, those that have the bigger armies are the ones that are in authority, those that have the strongest muscles are the ones that are powerful. But in my kingdom... It's the one who serves. It's the one who forgives. It's the one who loves. Jesus' society will not be like the society that we live in. And that is why it is so difficult. It's a lifelong process of beginning to understand Jesus' kingdom. 
Because everything in the way that we do, the way our businesses, the way our government, the way our families, the way media, the way money, the way our ambitions, even many times the way we do church is wrapped up in a societal way that everybody around us operates. And to step back and to step out of that and hear Jesus' but not hear is so counterintuitive that it takes a continual immersion in Jesus, in his word, and with his people. But not hear, Jesus says, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, even Jesus' most zealous disciples can get it wrong. But, but you're the Messiah. You don't suffer. You don't need to go through suffering. Your job is to inflict suffering on the enemy. Jesus, don't drink the cup. It's interesting, after Jesus wrestles with that in the prayer in the garden and then says, not my will, your be, yours be done. It's the devil through his own close friends like Peter that are saying, you know that stuff about not my will, yours be done? Jesus, you don't have to drink the cup. You don't have to go through with this. And Jesus with Peter, like he did on an earlier occasion when he said, get behind me, Satan, is once again saying, Peter, put that sword away. Because Peter, once again, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking in the way that my father thinks. You're still thinking in the ways of the kingdoms of this era. Peter still wasn't getting this suffering and dying part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, you, you should strike back. But Jesus said, no more of this. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, the temptation to accomplish things the way of society continued to be thrown in his face. I've heard some preachers that say that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, uh, the devil was kind of dancing a, a little party of, this is my victory. But when you read the Gospels, I don't get that impression at all. In fact, what you seem to get more is that Satan actually got what was going on. Because Satan was doing anything but throwing a party, it seems that Satan was throwing everything at Jesus to try to get Jesus off the cross. Satan was trying to get Jesus right from when Jesus was in the wilderness, in the desert, all the way to when Jesus was hanging there. Satan was trying everything to say, Jesus, you don't have to go through with this. Satan didn't want Jesus to die. And so Satan 
through all the different people as Jesus was hanging on the cross, again and again was trying to get Jesus off that cross. We read in Matthew, those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, why don't you save yourself? Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Who do you think is speaking through those people saying that to Jesus? And I know in me, boy, that would be tempting. If I was hanging on that cross and I knew that I had the power to come down off that cross and punch some faces in, when people are walking by saying, yeah, you think you're so big, you think you're so great, why don't you come down off that cross and show yourself, oh, everything in me would want to come off that cross. I'll show you who's tough. But Jesus hung there, refused to give in to the temptation, refused to try to solve things the way we so often solve things. In fact, Matthew goes on and says, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said. He can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel, he says. Well, let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Why doesn't God rescue him now if he wants him? He said, I'm the son of God. And then Matthew continues on and says, in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults at him. There's Jesus hanging on the cross from the criminals to the chief priests to the leaders to the teachers to just the bypassers. Every single one that's walking by his disciples, his people have abandoned him. Everyone that's coming by is mocking him, hurling insults at him and all throwing one temptation his way. Come down off that cross if you're powerful. Prove it. Show that you're strong. It's exactly what Satan wanted. And yet Jesus stayed there. And yet Jesus, no matter what the mocking crowd did, refused to come off the cross. As Jesus died on the cross, Satan panicked because Jesus was drinking the cup. Jesus was choosing the path of suffering, the path of death, the will of his Father, the path that would defeat death and sin and the devil. And Jesus would do it by refusing to throw another rock. By refusing to draw his sword. And recognizing that if I throw a rock, you just throw a rock back. If I throw a bigger rock, you'll just eventually find another big one to throw back at me. If I draw my sword, you draw your sword. Jesus was going to break the cycle. Satan wanted Jesus to fight. 
But Jesus won by laying down his life. See, Jesus suffered and died in our place. But Jesus also set an example for us by what he did. Just as Jesus washed our feet to show that he came for us, Jesus said that what I do, I also do to set an example for you to do for others. In the same way, Jesus suffered in our place, but also to model for us and to teach us how to break the cycle of violence and to sometimes suffer in the place of others. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And they must take up their cross and follow me. Just as I hung on the cross and I refused to come down, so my disciples must take up their cross and follow me in the same way. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life will find it. Again, it's the flip of what we would think. When Jesus was on the cross and he was being tempted, come down off the cross and save yourself. What Jesus knew is that whoever wants to save himself will really lose. If Jesus would have come down off that cross, he would have lost. But whoever loses their life for the sake of truth, for the sake of what's right, will in the end find it. Now, this is not at all advocating that we should stay in abusive relationships. Sometimes the Bible is misused to hurt people or to keep people in unhealthy situations. This is not by any means saying that people should stay in abusive relationships or that we should be blind to hurt or blind to people who are exploited. But even in those situations, we need to recognize that striking back is rarely ever the answer. There may be the odd time that you got to punch a bully in the face to protect yourself. But to transform a bully's life, to give him the potential to transform, love needs to be shown. Even those that work in law enforcement or in security know that you need to, when a person is agitated, de-escalate the situation. Coming in with guns blazing only escalates it even more. And there are times in our broken system where we need to have to use some force. But force is just simply there for protection. It never solves the problem. It's going to be through other means that problems are solved. One cartoon I used to watch as a kid, well, to, to be brutally honest, I still watch it when I get a chance, but um, it was called Tiny Tunes. And in one episode, Plucky Duck and Hampton Pig, the two characters you see on the screen there, get into a huge fight about something and then appear in a boxing ring. And they're both in the corners of the boxing ring, and they are going to duke it out. And Plucky, he's angry, he's getting more and more red, he's sitting in the corner, and as he is, his, is with his anger seating, he starts to just blow up like a balloon. 
And he gets bigger and bigger and his muscles start to burst. His shirt starts to tear. And he just becomes this huge duck. And then in the other corner, Hampton's just sitting there. And he's kind of just sitting there all normal. The bell rings. The two come running to the center of the ring. Nose to nose or nose to beak. And Plucky is five times the size of Hampton. And just as Plucky is about to pound him into the mat, Hampton looks up into Plucky's eyes and says, I'm sorry. And as soon as he does, as only can happen in cartoons, Plucky, like a balloon that the air's been left out, goes all over the screen and then just lands in a puddle of himself on the mat with just his beak. And then his beak says, hey, that's not fair. I'm still mad at you. And every time I think about that, I think about the power of forgiveness. It's a beautiful illustration of no matter how big Plucky got, no matter how big, there's something so powerful about an apology, about forgiveness that just deflates the whole situation. When we refuse to strike back, And we admit that we're wrong. Peter wants Jesus to choose the way of the sword. But Jesus wants Peter to choose the way of forgiveness. The way Malala, after being shot three times and left for dead by the Taliban in India, said... I don't want revenge on the Taliban. I want education for the sons and daughters of the Taliban. Remarkable story. You can Google it, watch it on YouTube. She won a Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago. Remarkable story of the power of forgiveness. During a night with, of swimming with girlfriends... The bride-to-be, Rachel Friedman, was horsing around and got jokingly pushed into the shallow end of a pool where she hit her head on the bottom. She cracked her neck and was not able to feel anything below it and has not been able to feel anything below it since. And yet, despite this life-changing injury, Friedman went on with her marriage And said that she has never harbored resentment towards her friend about this freak accident. You know how freeing that is for both her and for that friend who did that? The world's way would be sue her. Get as much as you can out of her. You've wrecked my life. You've destroyed everything that I've dreamt about. But she chose the path. Of forgiveness. Stephen McDonald was a young police officer in 1986 when he was shot by a teenager in New York's Central Park that left him paralyzed. He says, I forgave the shooter because I believe the only thing worse than receiving a bullet in my spine would have been to nurture revenge in my heart. You can be paralyzed, yes, in the spine by a bullet. 
But there's nothing worse than being paralyzed in life because of anger, resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred. Stephen McDonald realized he can live a much more fulfilling life paralyzed when his heart has been soft and he's forgiven. After a long shift at the fire department, Matt Swatzel fell asleep while driving and crashed into another vehicle. The crash took the life of the pregnant mother, June Fitzgerald, and injured her 19-month-old daughter. Fitzgerald's husband, however, asked for the man that hit his wife, asked that he'd have a diminished sentence, and began meeting with Matt for coffee. When he was asked about this, because it was so strange, he said, you forgive because you have been forgiven. What would it look like for God's followers to choose the way of the cross? The two have been, gone on to become lifelong friends. Certainly the way of Jesus is more inconvenient. I'm not saying that this is easy. But it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. It's sacrificial. It costs time. It costs energy. It costs money. It costs the sacrificing of some of our dreams and goals for life. Sometimes it even costs our life. But it's Jesus' way. Peter's sword only raises more swords. It's by raising the cross that we can say with Jesus, it is finished. As Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. I find it funny that Jesus ended so many of his messages by saying, for those who have ears, let them hear. Because Malchus no longer had an ear. It got chopped off by Peter. But that's where Jesus steps in once again. He not only told Peter to put away his sword, but in recounting this same story in Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. We all need that touch. Because, to be honest, we all can't quite hear right the messages and the voices that we hear all around us can so drown out the message and the voice of Jesus. And we need Jesus to touch our ear like he did Malchus's ear so that we can hear with his ears.
For 2,000 years, Jesus' message of forgiveness has continued to transform families and clubs and politics and business and neighborhoods and churches. And it's a foretaste of the coming of God's kingdom. As Bono from U2 said, I believe in kingdom come. There all the colors bleed into one. Love and forgiveness are the most powerful weapons available to us. They breed new life where there seems to be only death. They turn on their lights where it seems that there is only darkness. They save lives and they change people when it seems like things are unchangeable. They turn the world for good. And we as a church get to be the ambassadors of this good news message of love and forgiveness. What a great privilege. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us. You loved us so that we could love. You forgave us so that we could forgive. You showed us mercy so that we could show mercy to others. Lord, we just thank you for the fact that we can live free as people that have been forgiven and no longer have to hold on to the sin that entangles us and tears us down. And Lord, we pray that we will set people free as well as we forgive them and we extend the same grace that you've shown to us to others. And we pray, Lord, that they will embrace it. That they will embrace what it means and what it looks like to have a life forgiven. We pray these things in your name. Amen.